So, 1 Peter, chapter 3, verses 8 to 22. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. G'day, everyone. Uh, My name's Lindsay. I'm one of the ministry apprentices here at St. Matthew's. Uh, It'll be a great help if you keep 1 Peter open in front of you as we go through that together. Uh, Well, we're just past the halfway point in our uh, sermon series in 1 Peter, Uh, and as we open up this next part of it, uh, I just want to ask you, how are you going? Uh, Not how are you going like, how was your week, but how are you going with 1 Peter? And in particular, how are you going with this idea of suffering? Because there's been a lot of suffering chat in 1 Peter. It's a book written to people who suffer griefs in all kinds of trials. It has a lot to say about suffering, about how the gospel speaks into the messy, unfair, painful situations in our lives. Peter says, the Christian life is one of suffering. And no matter who you are, no matter how familiar you are with that idea... It's hard not to feel a little knot of fear in your stomach when you hear that, isn't it? The Christian life is one of suffering. Over the past few weeks, we've looked at submission and the call Christians have to submit to the authorities in their lives, even when it means suffering. But as we saw in verse 9, we have a great summary of how we follow the example of Jesus. Repay evil with blessing. 
both in submission and suffering generally, Peter says Christians can entrust themselves to God because God is the perfect judge. Because as it says in verse 12, his ears are attentive to their prayer, but his face is against those who do evil. Christians can be single-minded in running away from sin and doing good, even when it means submitting to unfair authorities, even in the face of all kinds of suffering now. But Peter isn't just trying to change how we think about suffering. He's trying to change how we feel about suffering as well. Notice what he says in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Peter thinks that Christians can approach suffering now not with fear, but with expectation. How could that be? How could I not feel fear when I think about suffering? Peter says that the answer is to look at what happens when people suffer righteously. Righteous suffering has results. To put it another way, uh, the kids' church leaders, when they're teaching this to the kids, they might put it uh, like this. Suffering for doing good does good. Peter says we can look at the results of our suffering and the results of Jesus' suffering. Seeing the good that happens when people righteously suffer, we can replace our fear with expectation. As Christians, we're never told to ask for suffering, but because suffering for doing good does good, we don't have to fear. We can expect good things to happen. Let's have a look at what those things are. Uh, Peter says that some of those things happen now. If you have a look at verse 13, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? There will be times when Christians will avoid harm because they have suffered righteously in the past. The bosses who slander Christians for what they believe are the same bosses who want honest, respectful people working for them and who might stand up for their Christian employees. So often people who rail against the church are the first people to praise Christians for for their generosity and gentleness, to praise the Christians in their lives. There's wisdom in being eager to do good. There are natural consequences for our actions, and so doing good can sometimes do good here and now. But Peter doesn't spend long there, does he? Have a look at verse 14. Even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Even if you should suffer. God blesses us even when we suffer. Which will be a little bit hard to see if we think that God blessing us just looks like getting a new car or winning a prize or enjoying the beach on a hot summer's day. Those things are God's blessing too. But God can bless us in much deeper ways, much better ways. Whether it's growing in dependence on him or growing in love for him or growing in intimacy with him, however God chooses to bless us, he promises that we are currently blessed when we suffer. Peter also says that righteous suffering 
leads to gospel opportunities. Read with me from verse 15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. People says, we, Peter says we can expect gospel opportunities and conversations when we live in line with what we believe. Repaying evil with blessing is going to be hard for Christians, but it is virtually impossible for non-Christians. And so when people see Christians repaying evil with blessing, it's shocking. They're forced to think, this person thinks something that I don't. This person is hoping in something different to me. And we've seen a pattern of this in 1 Peter, haven't we? Chapter 1, verse 21. People see our good deeds and glorify God. Chapter 3, verse 1. Husbands may be won over by wives without words, unbelieving husbands. The biggest battle is for people's desires, not their intellect. People won't put their trust in Jesus without hearing the message of the gospel. But God opens up people's hearts to the gospel when they see how Christians respond with hope rather than fear when they're treated poorly for doing good. Uh, Now, don't worry if you're nervous or clumsy in conversation. Uh, Some people are gifted with quick minds and fine-tuned theological rhetoric. But Peter thinks the best advertisement for Jesus is godliness, righteous suffering. It's not clever arguments. It's saying nothing when we experience injustice. While everyone else will retaliate with fear and anger, with horn honking and gossiping, the thing that really shakes people's confidence is forgiveness. Responding to gossip with forgiveness and a warm meal Responding to words of slander with words of praise and encouragement. Repaying evil with blessing. And so Peter says, be prepared. Have your testimony ready. Be ready to answer why it is that your hope isn't in money. It isn't in people's approval. Plan what you'll say. Think about what people might ask and how they might ask it. We can and we should look forward that with expectation rather than fear. And just as a very quick aside, it's worth asking ourselves a question too. When was the last time I got asked about my faith or about the hope that I have? Is there evidence in my life to the hope I claim to have? Ben's going to dig into that for us in a few weeks uh, as we look at chapter 4. But here, Peter is expecting that Christians are suffering righteously and is encouraging them to continue in it. Why? Because it will lead to gospel conversations. It will make some people curious. Some people will be curious, but he also says that some people will be ashamed. Did you notice that? Let's read from verse 15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the... Give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ 
may be ashamed of their slander. Why is someone becoming ashamed of what they've said a good outcome? Uh, Proverbs puts it like this. Uh, When we repay evil with blessing, it's like we're heaping coals on our enemies' heads. That doesn't sound very Christian, does it? Uh, We get a similar idea in 2 Corinthians. Paul says sorrow is used by God to bring people to repentance. In 2 Thessalonians, he says that shame is what people should feel when they stop obeying God's instructions. When we fight sin with sin, we validate people's sin. When we repay evil with blessing, we shame them. We drive them towards repentance. And so we don't want shame for shame's sake. We want it for Jesus' glory. We want people to feel ashamed now. Because people will either feel ashamed now and repent, or they'll be ashamed later on, on the day when it's too late to admit that Jesus is Lord. But they'll have to admit it anyway. Either way, we don't have to try and shame people now with harsh words or humiliation. We repay evil with blessing. We don't fear people. We respond with love, expecting them to be shamed by God and hoping that it leads to their repentance. Uh, Lots of you will know of Tim Keller, uh, an extremely uh, helpful and encouraging Christian speaker and writer. Uh, He died this week after a long struggle with cancer, uh, and there's two Tim Keller quotes that I had to add into this sermon uh, once I heard. Uh, Here's the first one. The temptation for those who suffer is to assume that because we can't think of any good purposes God may have for our suffering, there can't be any. We know that suffering will lie ahead for all of us, but we're told not to fear those things or fear those people. We can have expectation instead of fear. We can be on the lookout for the good that God is doing when we suffer righteously. We can expect results. Uh, And this isn't just wishful thinking. Peter's not just trying to say, just try and look on the bright side, find that silver lining. It's not all bad, it could be worse. Peter is confident that real good happens when we suffer righteously. Because real good happened when Jesus suffered righteously. That's what we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at. Jesus' righteous suffering is the proof of concept for our righteous suffering. The result of his suffering is a thumping victory. To understand the result of Jesus' suffering, Peter says you need to understand two things, his victory and our victory. Come with me to verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus suffered and Jesus died. But death, uh, but suffering and death was just the first stop. Let's have a look at where Jesus ended up. Let's jump down to verse 22. Jesus has gone into heaven and is seated at God's right hand 
with angels, authorities and power in submission to him. Grave to glory, tomb to throne room. He submitted and now everything and everyone is in submission to him. Uh, Now, there's some funky stuff you might have noticed uh, in between those two verses. Uh, We are going to dig into them. But seeing where Jesus starts and seeing where he ends is key. Grave to glory. Uh, Understanding that will help us unpick what's going on uh, in those verses in between. But more importantly, it will help us suffer righteously now. So... What the heck is going on in verse 19 and 20? Let's read them. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Uh, Now, it's worth saying that there are really good uh, people, people much smarter than me, uh, people who have read much more widely than me, who disagree about how these verses should be read. Uh, But from the reading I have done, um, and from where Jesus starts and where he ends in this passage, uh, I think this will help us understand why Peter has included these words here, uh, how it's part of Jesus' journey uh, from grave to glory. All right, here we go. Uh, Some of you might have seen this diagram before. Uh, Apologies to Katie Stair and others listening to our sermon recordings after tonight. Um, I can send you this diagram if that's helpful. Uh, It doesn't matter if you've never seen this diagram before uh, because I'm going to change it up anyway. Um, (laughs) This diagram helps us understand how the New Testament talks about our lives between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. At his first coming, he died, rose again, and is now seated next to God, as we've seen in this passage. And one day, he's coming back. That's the day Christians are looking forward to more than anything else. God will make everything right. Heaven and earth and people who trust in Jesus will be made perfect. Uh, Now we know from this passage that something happened while the ark was being built. That there were spirits who were disobedient. And that phrase, disobedient spirits, uh, might ring some bells for you if you were at Hub this week. Uh, 2 Peter, chapter 2, verse 4, seems to reference something similar. Uh, 2 Peter, chapter 2, verse 4, says this, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. Uh, Now, what's going on in 2 Peter and what's going on in 1 Peter uh, might not be exactly the same thing. They might not be talking about exactly the same spirits. Uh, But interestingly, just like in 1 Peter, uh, Peter goes on to mention Noah and the flood in 2 Peter as well, right after talking about these disobedient spirits. Uh, Whether it is that event or not, the Bible clearly has some kind of category for the spiritual realm and spirits being held in captivity, awaiting judgment. Now, 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4 says, these disobedient angels were sent to hell, but Isn't hell the place that Jesus talks about? Isn't that the place where his followers, where people who aren't his followers are sent after his second coming? Yes, uh, unhelpfully, there's a few different words 
that can be translated hell. Uh, the one in 2 Peter is uh, a word called Tartarus, uh, a Greek word for the underworld, uh, the place where the dead go. Uh, in other places in the New Testament, there's a place called Hades, uh, which is also the place where people go when they die. And in Revelation 20, we read about Hades being thrown into the lake of fire. Uh, so let's add those things onto our diagram now. Uh, now, Hades and Tartarus might not be exactly the same place, but they're both places where beings are held until final judgment. They're in the holding cell. They're the holding cell before their occupants are sent to Gehenna, to hell, or sent into the new creation. Uh, so, in in the meantime, between imprisonment and final judgment, we have our imprisoned spirits mentioned in chapter in one Peter, uh, chapter three. And our passage says that after being made alive, after Jesus' resurrection, he went to make proclamation to these imprisoned spirits. He's dunking on them. The risen Lord Jesus, the man who is dead and is now alive, has gone to tell the evil spirits that they're done. In Revelation 12, we read that after Jesus died and rose again, Satan, the accuser, was hurled down. We read that he has been triumphed over by the blood of the Lamb. Sin has been defeated because Jesus paid for it. Death has been defeated because Jesus just killed it. And Jesus swings by Tartarus to tell these imprisoned spirits that they're cooked. Their boss has just been hurled down to earth. His limited power has been squashed. The resurrection is such, an earth, is such earth-shattering news that it was worth Jesus going via the underworld just to make sure that everyone knew about it. Now, why does Peter mention this? Because he doesn't want us to fear. He tells us not to fear. The evil forces in our world have been defeated. Uh, Here's the short version of that. Uh, These evil spirits are like criminals who've been arrested, but now they've been sentenced. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, the verdict is in. They're just sitting in the courtroom with their handcuffs on, waiting to be thrown into prison. The result of Jesus' suffering was the most significant victory ever. By his death and resurrection, Jesus has accomplished good by eradicating evil, killing death. Jesus approached his suffering with expectation. He told people he was going to die, but he told them he was going to rise again. He didn't hide from suffering. He didn't hear it. He didn't fear it because he knew what the result of his suffering would be. But there's more. Because amazingly, his victory is our victory. The short answer to what is going on in verse 19 and 20 is the victory of Jesus. And the short answer to what is going on in verse 21 is your victory. Your victory over death. Let's jump in at verse 21. It starts, and this water, that is the water of the flood from the previous verse, this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, 
but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter says, next time you're at a baptism, the water should remind you of the flood. It's not about having a bath and getting your body clean. It's a symbol of being saved through judgment, like Noah was. It's a symbol of a spiritual reality. Uh, Now, that intensity kind of gets lost on us when we go down to the picturesque Matilda Bay. Uh, It's a bit harder to imagine the foaming torrent of death uh, when we baptise someone in a kid's paddling pool out the back there. Um, But Peter says, as that person gets lowered into the water, we should think of the physical and spiritual death that we all deserve closing over us like the floodwaters. Imagine... Uh, if the next time we had a baptism at Uni Church, we all watch Evan as he lowers the person down, and then imagine he holds them there. As he's holding them under the water, he says he's going to hold them there for three minutes. At first, everyone laughs, but then it goes quiet as he keeps holding them there. The longer he holds them there, the closer they get to death. Imagine the relief we'd all feel when they come up, burst out of the water with only a few seconds of oxygen left to spare. Peter says Jesus didn't just have a close shave with death. His resurrection wasn't until the third day after he had died. He was dead. And it's his resurrection that saves us, that brings us up from death, up out of the water. It doesn't just save us from a close shave with death, but from the physical and spiritual death that we all deserve. We burst out from death into new life because of what Jesus did. Everyone, everyone in this room, everyone in this world is going to go under the water, just like in the flood. We're all going to die. But we can only come back up if we're attached to Jesus. The result of Jesus' righteous suffering is life for us. Uh, If you're here tonight, uh, I want to add my welcome to Josh's. Uh, We're so glad that you're here. And we really want you to know, to realise, that there is only one way up. When Jesus comes again, he's coming to judge. There's only one way to be on the right side of that judgment. It's by hopping on board the Jesus resurrection train. It's trusting him. It's admitting that even though we want to come close to God, we can't because we're unrighteous. And letting Jesus' righteous suffering bring us to God. The alternative is death. Hell, the kind that goes on forever, the kind that the evil spirits have in store for them because we have all disobeyed God. But it doesn't have to be that way. Peter says victory over death is a sure thing for Christians. Look at where you are on this diagram. We're on this side of God's final judgment, but Peter says there is no question about what God's judgment of us will be for people who have hopped on board with Jesus.
Have a quick uh, scan over verse 21. Notice uh, when we get saved. It's a little word, three letters, now. To use uh, Peter's words from earlier in the chapter, the reason for the hope that we have is the resurrection. Our hope is in something that has already happened. And so we don't need to fear. We shouldn't fear. We can be full of expectation instead. So how do we bring this all together? What do we make of all of this? Suffering for doing good does good. Jesus' victory, which is our victory. How is that going to help me in the moment? When the potential for suffering grips me with fear. When I'm deciding whether to repay evil with evil or evil with blessing. When I'm being teased or being fired from my job or being physically beaten for being a Christian. How will I remember to have expectation instead of fear? All you have to do is remember one letter, the letter J. Uh, When you trace a J backwards, it goes down a little and then it goes up a lot. Some people say that the Christian life is the cross-shaped life, that we suffer because Jesus suffered. And that's true, but only if we think about what happens between now and when we die, or between now and when Jesus comes back. Peter says we should start thinking of our lives. He doesn't actually say this. This is me speaking. Uh, But he says we should start thinking of our lives as the J-shaped life. Our life follows that J-shape. We follow the example of Jesus' death down into submission and suffering and even death. But that's not the end. Here's your second Tim Keller quote for the night. All death can now do to Christians is to make their lives infinitely better. How could he say that? Because our future is Jesus' resurrection. Life for us. We expect to experience hardship now as we follow the example of Jesus. As we repay evil with blessing. We are blessed, sometimes now and certainly in the future. So next time it looks like your Christianity is going to get you into trouble, when it will mean being quiet when you want to yell back, when it will mean speaking up when you'd rather not, when it will mean responding to gossip with forgiveness and a warm meal or responding to words of slander with praise and encouragement. Remember the letter J. Remember where you're going and don't be afraid. Be filled with expectation about what this suffering will produce. Because we can certainly expect suffering in this life, but Peter tells us not to fear it because we can expect so much more than suffering. We can expect good things to happen, amazing things. Your life If you're trusting in Jesus, it's the J-shaped life. It goes down a bit, but then it will go up a lot. So there's no need to fear suffering. Expect your suffering to do good things instead. Why don't we pray?
gracious Lord, we thank you so much for Jesus, for his righteous suffering for us, which has brought us to you. Please give us expectation as we think about suffering. Not because it is good, but because of what it produces for those who are trusting in you. We pray all of this in the precious name of your Son. Amen.